0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today, we're talking with Diana Taylor about her book, Presente, The Politics of Presence. Diana, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Andy. Very nice to be
0: here. Yeah, fantastic. Um, One of the things that we were talking about before we started recording is your, your notion about performance being a much more expansive category than maybe people typically think of it in terms of the performing arts, you know, dance, theater, uh, music. Um, what do you mean when you talk about performance?
1: Well, I have a very broad view of it, as you say, and, um, I started off as a theater director and, then writing about theater, and then um, I went to Argentina and I started walking around the square in front of the Plaza de Mayo with the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo because of, you know, the protesting for their disappeared children. I realized that, in fact, drama is much, much broader than anything we do on the stage. And that to think about the things that we do on the stage and the things that happen, you know, like in the world at large and things as performance, as drama... Was actually a much more fruitful um, perspective for me. So I went in uh, to performance studies at that point, and have worked with this expanded notion of performance to think about how all these different elements—the aesthetic element, the economic element—you know how the stock market is doing today, right—to um, think about how bodies are gendered as performance, right, the way that we're taught to function as men or women in certain societies in certain moments and so forth. So all of these things work together. And I find that with that kind of an optic, I can look at a lot more things with kind of a theatrical lens, Mm -hmm. but thinking about practice and aesthetics and theory as very intricately connected.
0: I got the sense reading your book that the kind of social drama that you're most interested in is kind of the theatricality of protest, rather than something like, you know, the happenings that people in the 60s were interested in.
1: Right. Well, I'm very, I'm very interested in the ongoing colonialism and coloniality in the Americas. So the ways in which, for example, um, we come to think of as as race you know, raced beings. In fact, a lot of our notions of race first get put into place, you know, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, How the notions, for example, of geographical divisions, where people live, who's allowed to occupy space, all of those things keep coming back and keep coming back. So in one of the chapters of the book, the one about Regina Galindo, the Guatemalan artist, performance artist, um, I, I start thinking about the first image is from Conquest, and then using her same exact performance, I go into the coloniality. I go into the period of the very brutal dictatorship in which uh, people were massacred and thrown into these open pits, which this performance, her performance of Tierra, which actually MoMA just bought very recently, um, So that performance was about that, but then also how it speaks to extractivism now, right? So the way the performance can make visible these long histories of colonial violence in the Americas and allow allow us to understand that time is unfolding in these ways that have this kind of a dramatic arc, if you want, to them. Mm -hmm. They repeat themselves, they come back, they intensify. They use symbols from the past and augment them. So that um, all of these different moments are very much, I call them scenarios, because they are kind of like a theatrical underpinning of how we used to think about these elements that just keep repeating themselves, right? Almost like stock characters.
0: Mm-hmm. You used a, a phrase in that answer that comes up time and time again in your book, which is the Americas. And I'd love to talk about that idea of kind of thinking about the Americas as a kind of, you know, unit of analysis, which to me, I mean, I I, I hate to kind of hazard an autobiographical interpretation of a scholar's work, but, but you have a very interesting background as somebody who teaches at a U.S. university, but grew up in Mexico and had Canadian parents. Is that right? How do you feel like that upbringing influenced your thoughts about kind of the place of the Americas uh, in, in or the, the countries of the Americas in context of each other?
1: Um, I think, yes, it's deeply autobiographical in the sense that I never saw the Americas as separated. I went from one to the other. You know, I was a, a child in northern Mexico, and I had to go to boarding school in Canada when I was nine months, nine years old. Right, and back and forth, and so I saw them as different aspects, if you want, of one same larger, broader context. Um, but if you think about it historically, the Americas are one, right? Because the the conquest of the Americas that begins in, you know, if you want, fourteen ninety two, that started in the Caribbean and then, you know, what is now Mexico, and then went down into, you know, Peru and then Brazil and then all the way down to the Southern Cone and then later started up in, you know, Louisiana, right? And then all the way up to, well, I know I, actually my U.S. Uh, history is, is not as good. It's uh, at the Mayflower and then down through Louisiana and the French um, invasions and then Canada, right? So the history of invasion and conquest is common to the Americas. The displacement of indigenous populations is common to the Americas. The history of slavery is common to almost all of the Americas, except for basically Canada. So all of these histories that are really big, central parts of our ongoing dramas today are actually characteristic, if you want, of all the Americas, and to a certain degree, Canada that's still dealing With the trauma of its indigenous population, its residential schools, and all of that. So, we have so much more in common than um, we think of, for example, these economic relationships that we may have with with Europe. I'm very, let me apologize for this. I can't seem to get rid of this ping. Um, than we have with, for example, Europe, or than we have with Asia or other countries if we think about our West-West relationships. So for me, it's been really urgent to think North-South and to think the way that we're all connected and the incredible role that the U.S. has, in quote, the Americas, although it never sees itself as part of the Americas. So I think that trying to highlight the role of the Americas in this um, drama of imperialism and conquest is um, really vital for our moment now.
0: And you really start your book, I mean, not even at 1492, at at earlier moments and kind of looking at the long duration of these processes of colonization in the Americas. Why did you feel like it was important to start that far back when looking at, I mean, the performance practices that you write about in the book are primarily contemporary or, or near contemporary, but you, well, you situate them in this long history. Why was that important for you?
1: Well, because I guess I keep seeing the um, these flashbacks, right? And the other thing that I wanted I wanted to make clear in this book is that there's other ways of being in the world. Capitalism and imperialism is not the only way in which to organize to organize ourselves either politically or economically. But there's very little indication of how we can kind of be otherwise if we just look at the contemporary world because uh, globalization and you know this rampant capitalism and so forth has so become like the only explanatory uh, paradigm. But if you think about pre-conquest times, which is actually, you know, non-Western, if we actually go to the non-Western, and the only part of that I know is the Americas, I'm sure that this also could be seen in other parts of the world. um, We can see that there are other ways of thinking about, say, something as basic as subjectivity, right? I mean, for me, when when I understood that notion, it just absolutely was revelatory because I, you know, in Western thought, we are self-defining creatures. There's a very strong, independent um, I that's not related to other people. In fact, it's self-definitional if we go back to Descartes, right? I think, therefore, I am. But indigenous populations do not have a word for I. I mean, just think about a worldview in which I as a separate entity, does not exist. That the I is always relational. So I start with that. That's my very first opening concept in that book, which is that to be me, I have to walk and talk with others. Right? I am only in relationship to you, and you to me, and to our communities. So it's very important that now especially that we start Kind of activating our political imagination to imagine other ways of being in the world. And so the only place I could go to, if you want, to think of a model that I wasn't just making up, you know, out of nothing, um, was to go to these other practices. And so the Zapatistas, for example, one of the reasons I've been so interested in the Zapatistas is because they have not only envisioned another way of living in the very heart of this very brutal, brutal capitalism. I mean, I don't know if if you know, but I mean, the Mexican government was actually ordered by Chase Bank to exterminate the Zapatistas. And they were about to do so, except that then there was such a huge public outcry that was... um, carried forward by a lot of people who do protests both in Mexico, in the Zapatista communities and globally, that they had to back down. So the Zapatistas have been living in their own world, if you want, for over 30 years now. They have like th- two different generations of kids have grown up in Zapatismo. They have their own schools, they have their own health care, they have their own Absolutely sustainable agriculture. They have their own way of doing everything because if they step outside of their lands, the Mexican government will kill them, right? So, you try. I try to imagine how do people live other ways, with other sense of relationality of you know communal. Um, I don't know obligation or just say a, a different sense of communal understanding than we have, and. I've just, you know, gone back and back and back because it is just for me fascinating. I mean, we're in a moment here as you know, right? Where some people won't wear a, a face mask to pre- protect others from getting covid. Right? It's like, okay, talk about the complete opposite of thinking that I exist in relationship to you and you to me, right? That there's a kind of a an ethics of care.
0: No. Yeah. I saw something fascinating. There was a, a Republican congressperson who got COVID uh, after speaking without a mask on the floor of Congress. And he said when he was sort of confronted about that and asked sort of, do you regret doing that now? He said, well, you know, the masks really protect other people more than they protect you. So, yeah. so you know, the idea that if if he thought the mask would protect him, maybe he would have wore it. But yeah. uh, but but the, if it was only going to protect the other people that he worked with, then then what's the point?
1: I know it's, yeah, it's mind-boggling, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wanted to make that point clear, at least, and I think it is. I think that yeah. you know, that point is everywhere. So I base myself on this other world system that I can at least speak to and I can point to, uh, you know, kind of found foundational texts and things like that to, as I say, prove that I'm not just making it up.
0: <laughs> One of the things that's so fascinating to me about the Zapatistas is that... Uh, they are engaged in this, you know, centuries long struggle, like they see their struggle as starting in 1492. Right. And yet they're also very um, savvy in terms of contemporary uses of media, but also, you know, they have uh, long standing engagements with like contemporary critical theory texts, yeah,
1: so uh, which is maybe
0: not the kind of thing you expect, you know, guerrilla revolutionaries to be doing if you have a kind of stereotyped view of what that means.
1: Right, right, right. No, they invite all these great, you know, sinkers down to talk to them, you know, Naomi Klein and uh, Donna Haraway, you know, whoever's Diana working, Taylor, you know, who's <laughs> ever worked, they find interesting, you know, they'll engage and mm-hmm. um, they are so smart. And one of the things that I've really loved about being there is that they say, don't expect us to solve your problems, right? Mm-hmm. You go home. And, and they also say, this is also super interesting. They say, don't come and join us you know, you're not of any good to us really here. You've got to fight your battles wherever it is that you're placed, right? So you live in this community, that's where you have to fight your, your battles for a sustainable future, you know, for more um, humane and better ways of kind of living together, coexistence and so forth. That's where you fight it. Don't, I mean, Don't put on a mask and then pretend you're going to be a sabatista, right? So I think that that's very important for all of us because I've heard so many of my students say, well, yeah, it's great for them. They can do it, but what can I do? There's nothing I can do. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, actually, they would suggest the opposite. They would suggest that the work you can do, you alone can do from where you are, right? Nobody else can do the work or contribute the way you can contribute. You do it from where you are, and figure out what your battle is, and that's one of the first things I say in my in my book, in this book Presente, where I'm faced with this Permanent People's Tribunal. I'm, an, I'm I was a judge on that, and all of these folks, you know, who were coming from Central America, a region that in fact has been devastated by U.S. foreign policy, right? Devastated, um, the civil wars of the 1970s and so on, and then now you know, with the overthrow of the government of of, uh, Honduras and so forth. So with, with those folks coming here and the incredible violence that they have met all along the way, all the way through Central America, all the way through Mexico, where migrants are being killed at a very appalling rate, and then the terrible situation that they face in the U.S., and I listened to all of these stories and I thought to myself, what can I do? And one of the points I make in the book is that Performance puts, makes ethical demands on us. You mm-hmm. know, we watch something, we hear something, and all of a sudden I was left with, what can I do? And then I come to the thing where, well, I have to do something. Um, and one of the light motifs of the book is, what do you do when it seems that nothing can be done, but doing nothing is not an option? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there was no option. What could I do? I said, I could only do what I can do. So I'm an academic, so I use my academic um, skills. I know how to do some fundraising. I use my fundraising skills. Um, all my documentation, I know something about internet stuff, so we made this huge internet um, companion to a lot of these struggles. So that's what I can do. I can't do what a revolutionary can do or what a doctor can do, or but I'm obliged to do what I can do. So I think if nothing else... That for me became like the central point of my book, right? Was in these different situations, what is it that we can do? And what are these folks doing? What are these artists doing? You know, Regina Galindo, um, the Yes Man, um, you know, the folks who are doing uh, the performances in Brazil. that I talk about Vertigem, Teatro Vertigem, and, you know, the guy who's giving the guided tours of this torture center, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing... I think what they feel that they can do, that they are qualified and uh, able to do to help and to make that a better situation.
0: You tell a story in the book about um, a, a gathering of uh, activists, uh, artists, and academics, where uh, the the artists and the activists were sort of... Uh, wary of the academics' presence at the conference. (laughs) Could you discuss a little bit about about that interaction and kind of what you see the role of performance studies academics being in in these kind of uh, global struggles against neoliberal capitalism?
1: Yes. Um, Well, 22 years ago, I started what is called the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics. And it was to understand uh, the role of performance in political interventions in a broad manner of ways and it brings people together. It still exists. It brings people together from throughout the Americas, artists, scholars, and activists. And we do these huge get-togethers where, you know, there's performances, there's roundtables, there's discussions, work groups, all of these things. And so in the first one, there was a. I mean, and we were always talking about everything, right? And so the first discussion was, okay, fine. Artists use their bodies. Okay, fine. Activists use their bodies, right? They'll lay down on a street so, you know, tractors can't go by or whatever, right? They've got their bodies on the line. They said, well, what do you academics do? Why are you here? And I said, well, yes, you use your bodies and your bodies are always on the front line. I said, but who started really theorizing the body and to think about the body in terms of race or to think about the bodies in terms of gender or sexuality or, you know, what these complicated histories of how we've come to think of our bodies. And they say, okay, okay, fine, you can stay. And that was the end of that discussion. It was, yes, we all have something to contribute and Mm -hmm. it's in a very different way, but it's all necessary.
0: I wonder if we could talk about the question of audience for your writing. Um, Your book, I found to be in some ways, much more accessible than a lot of writings about performance. Is that intentional? Do you feel like you're trying to reach an audience outside of the kind of performance studies academia?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, A lot of my work, I am hoping to enter into conversations with people who are interested in the same kinds of problems, issues, if you want, Um, like, for example, how do we create sustainable worlds? but who don't necessarily share my language or, you know, my jargon or even my disciplinary training. So I very much want, you know, I I, I start with uh, an image in this book where I talk about how as a kid in uh, school in Mexico City, I used to stay for roll call, which in Spanish is presente, you know, like present. Mm -hmm. And then I jump over the fence and go home. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> and I kind of very haphazardly studied on my own. So um, one of the things I, I talk about in the book is I'm envisioning now jumping over that fence again, if you want, in terms of disciplinary boundaries and talking to people from other parts of the world or other disciplines or other artistic practices and being able to have a conversation with them. And one of the conversations I stage in this book is not, a real conversation. It never happened. But it's basing myself on the work of this indigenous scholar uh, who is a, a colleague and a friend of mine from the Mayan community, from the Zapatista community down in southern Mexico, and some very, very eminent neurobiologists uh, in the United States. And I'm thinking about both of their theoretical work. And what I'm, what I'm talking about is that they're both trying to answer the same kind of question. How is it that, number one, neither of them divide the world into subject and object? They both, both of those groups, the neurobiologists and um, these Mayan scholars, but particularly one who writes about this, um, think about everything as somehow animated. Things have energy, right? And we've actually come to understand that through science. So... How is it that all of these things in the universe, like from amoeba onto trees, onto whatever, try to survive, try to adapt and thrive in their environment? So if we're thinking about sustainable worlds, I would love to talk to a neurobiologist, and I would love to talk to somebody from the Zapatista community who has not only figured out a way to do sustainable agriculture, but who has a whole theoretical um apparatus if you want around it as well as i would love to talk to uh, people who study language and how language gets transmitted over centuries you know what i'm saying right Mm -hmm. it's like um there are other conversations to be had and i want my work to be accessible to that but i want them all to understand the role of performance Because for me, that's central. Everything I write about is about performance because performance, if we think about embodied practice, if we think about the behaviors and the things that we do with our bodies, whether they're aesthetically motivated, you know, we're doing a piece of theater or whether it's, you know, or dance or whatever, or whether, you know, we're doing football or it's a a mass or whether it's a political rally or whatever, they transmit a huge amount of information, and in my experience in um, Western culture, we've taken writing, you know, print culture very, very seriously. But we haven't analyzed, at least not to the degree, I, th- I think it's getting to be more and more now, but we weren't analyzing the things that pass through bodies and embodied practice, which I've come to think of as, you know, performance is one of the places that looks at embodied practice. Mm.
0: Right?
1: That's one of the... I think disciplines or post disciplines I would call it, that actually focuses on embodied practices, so I want to use that training to think about how this works in a in a larger context, and other people talk about texts and other people maybe talk about you know dreams, you know some indigenous scholars rely a lot on 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 dreams as forms of understanding what the unconscious mind is telling us, or, you know, communal tensions, or whatever, whatever people use, right, across all of these systems.
0: I feel like sometimes when people outside of performance studies hear this kind of talk about how everything can be conceived of as a performance, they wonder if that means is nothing authentic. You know, there's this idea that if if everything's a performance, that uh, there's some some kind of authentic self that's not being presented, uh, but I gather that's not what you're what you're yeah. implying. Could you yeah. kind of unpack that uh, that distinction a bit?
1: Yes, I don't I don't think that everything is is performance. Mm. Um, and here I will quote uh, my dear friend and colleague Richard Schechner, who, you know, by most tellings is the quote founder of performance studies as a as a field from his work with the anthropologist Victor Turner. Uh, back in the 60s. But what he says is, but you can think about anything as performance. So Hmm. not everything is performance. Um, You know, the chair is not a performance. A glass of water is not a performance, right? But you can think of it as a performance. You can imagine a theater piece in which the chair, for example, maybe moves by itself or becomes a character or can be seen as performance, right? You can imagine that in a Beckett play or something like that, right? Um, if I have a glass of water and I just drop it on the floor and I get another glass of water and I drop that on the floor and say I've dropped 100 glasses of water on the floor, that might be my performance. So it's, it's in the context, I think, that we can think of things as performance that are not in and of themselves A performance. So um, I wrote a whole little book about this. And if you haven't seen it, it's probably worth taking a look at. It's called Mm -hmm. Performance. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it came out with Duke University Press. It's come out in a ton of languages already, which I take as a a great uh, compliment. Now it's coming, the the one that's coming out right now is in Korean. Um, But anyway, one of the things that's interesting for me about that was when people say, well, what is it? Try to define it, it's very hard to define performance. Um, but what I came to was I, I think of performance as conventional behavior. That is, there are certain rules that govern performance. So, for example, you do theater. I know you write for theater, you mm-hmm. uh, put your you have plays put on. Well, a theater piece is a conventional piece. It has a beginning and an end. There's a time that happens before the theater where maybe we schmooze. There's a time that happens after the theater where maybe we schmooze again. But the theater has a beginning and an end, and it it follows certain kinds of norms, even though the play itself may break all of those norms. But it follows certain kinds of norms, and we say, oh, I saw a piece of theater last night, and people know what we mean. Um, The same thing with the sports event, for example, right? It's a beginning Mm -hmm. and an end. It follows certain norms. We know what we're watching or looking at when we go to a sports game. Same thing with a protest, right? There's a beginning and an end. So it doesn't just go into seamlessly into daily life, right? There's a beginning and an end. And there's certain conventions to performances and to protests that sometimes get violated and become something else, like what we saw in the U.S. last week, right? Um, So you can think of it as having these kinds of conventional behaviors that are different from just everyday life. But then you have other kinds of performance. If you think about when you think about gender and sexuality and these other actions or acts that we have internalized and normalized. And so now the way that people kind of do their gender roles is quite um, normative in a lot of different societies. So we could think about gender as performance, right? Um, we could think about politics as performance. You could think about, okay, there's a beginning and an end. Let's say the Trump years, that was a performance, right? And we can think about all of the different things that happened there or the insurrection at Capitol last week. So you can kind of bracket things, but performance has brackets around them, right? Mm -hmm. That are different from everyday events, which allow us to analyze them and think of them as performance. For me, that's useful. But more useful for me is what does it allow us to do? What does performance allow us to do? What does it allow us to think about together? So let's say, um, let's think about the performance of, say, the insurrection at the Capitol last week. What does it bring together? It brings together issues of race, white supremacy. It brings together issues of militarism. It brings together issues of, say, the legislative power, the seat of power in the United States. It brings together issues of gender, right? Um, I mean, I think of all of the things we could analyze if we took that as a certain performance of, of uh, this moment of crisis in the United States today, right? The things that looking at that as performance makes visible and available to us. That's, I guess, what I'm most interested in. In when I think about performance, and I think that's what my book does, right, is I I choose these moments and I encapsulate them to think about what that particular event allows us to see that we would not be able to see if we didn't bracket it and focus in in on it in that particular way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I saw a tweet about the Capitol insurrection that said, this is the worst production of Les Miserables I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about some of the individual kind of elements of social drama or, or, or performance that you talk about. There's one that took place in Mexico in 1968 that I found particularly uh, compelling. Could you narrate a bit about that performance?
1: Yes. Um, this was one of the kind of defining moments of contemporary Mexican history. And this was 1968 in, in the fall. And um, the student, the students in 1968, university students, but mainly I uh, had started with high school students, had been um, protesting because a lot of their or quite a few of their uh, colleagues, fellow students had been put in jail for protesting and like that. And so they started really kind of massively protesting and they were demanding that um, the students be liberated from prison, that the government reaffirm their right to free speech and free uh, expression and that they have a meeting with the president of Mexico. And in Mexico, the big main um, area in front of the national palace, the seat of government and the national cathedral, is called the Zócalo. And the Zócalo was where the Aztecs had their ancient center of power, which the Spaniards um, just made, actually made the conquered people take down their, their buildings and build out of the same stones to build their cathedral and their government building. Okay, so the students are meeting there and they're protesting. And they take down the big national flag. I have never in my life seen a flag as big as the national flag that flies in the Socalo in Mexico City. So they took it down and they um, hoisted up a strike flag, you know, which is the red and black flag for being on strike. They hoisted it up. The military opened up onto the square. They came out with tanks, with bazookas, with I don't know what all, and they ran the students out of the plaza. So the next day, the president declared a day of, 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 of what's the word in English? Um, uh, of, like right? mm-hmm. of, like repair, right? Like reconciliation, maybe? Reconciliation, or? Exactly. They were making up for this terrible desecration of the flag. And they ordered all the social servants in Mexico to show up and pledge their allegiance. So all of these social servants were bused in from all the government buildings and everything, and they were threatened to be fired if they didn't show up. So they they show up. They all kind of march into the square. And the square is massive. It holds like 300,000 people. Mm -hmm. So hundreds of thousands of people are getting pushed into the square. They all are lined up, and the speaker speaks from the national palace. And as soon as this person starts speaking the the, uh, civil servants, without any warning or without anything, turned their back on the speaker and started going, ah, 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 we are sheep of this administration. So you can imagine the interruption and the lack of of the loss, if you want, of legitimacy for the government when its civil servants turned their back on them. Um, So the um, the next day, and then, of course, the students started coming in, and you know, pushing in to try to get into the square. Uh, again, they were forcefully removed. And then the, the story has a very, very unhappy ending, a very terrible ending, because two weeks later, um, the government fired on the students in the square, on the square right adjacent to the Socalo and killed about 300 of them and burned them in the public square, just poured gasoline on their bodies and burned them. So that was when I was a high school student in Mexico City. And you can imagine when you come of age in a situation like that to understand that the government will kill you in broad daylight rather than negotiate or rather than, uh, you know, have a, an interview with you or speak to you. So that has been one of the most terrible, terrible events in in Mexican history. The reason, one of the reasons it happened was because the Olympics that were in Mexico that year, 1968, October 1968, um, were scheduled. And uh, the Mexican government was very afraid that the student protests were going to interrupt things. And so the games went on and nobody said a word about it, Mm -hmm. you know, about the fact that the Mexican government had just killed 300 of its students And, um, anyway, so that has been one of the things that has marked Mexico and, you know, the Zapatistas were very inspired by that. A lot of the, of today's activists have been inspired by that. The writers, the whole, this whole generation, my whole entire generation was completely driven if you want by that. So one of the things I talk about is that moment, but then I go back and I talk about Francis Alice, who is a Belgian Mexican artist who 30 years later did a a fabulous piece with sheep that he takes, um, I can't remember, 21 sheep, I think it is. And he rotates the same flagpole. And every time he does a rotation, one more sheep joins the rotation and they go around in perfect, perfect rotation. And then when the 21st sheep comes on the next rotation, the first sheep goes off. And then the next rotation, another until he's by himself following the last sheep off. And so this thing about the sheep and the multiplicity of sheep has been a, a constant theme in in Mexican art, in Mexican um, political imagination and so forth. So I'm talking about how these kinds of resistances, you know, the turning one's back, which I call an animative um, these kinds of resistances have these very, very, very long tails. Right? They are remembered mm-hmm. and they are rehearsed, they're reenacted, and they come up again and again in uh, in political practice.
0: Yeah, and and the way that uh, a performance like that gets remembered has a lot to do with kind of what comes after that performance. So you know, you talked about the performance being bracketed, but the massacre of the three hundred students was was not sort of part of the same performance as. The, the civil servants acting as sheep, and yet those two get associated together in the public memory. Right. They're they're impossible to, to separate them at a certain point.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, yeah, I mean, for so many reasons, right? I mean, the small gesture and and the huge crime, right? But
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And it's a very 68 story as well, this idea of student radicals. Forming an allegiance, or at least a temporary alliance with, uh, with, with you know, public sector workers in this case, or in the case of of France, with uh, industrial workers. I mean, it, it's a very hopeful moment at the time. So it ma- that makes the the horrible conclusion even more chilling.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there was real solidarity at that moment. You know, if you think about on a on a global level, the way that we could think about the moment of Occupy Wall Street, right, was Mm -hmm. another one of those moments where it seems like everybody was um, of a mind, if you want, without ever having spoken about it, without ever having, you know, discussed it. So and then one of the other things that um, I found so interesting was that was the Olympics also in which um, you had the Uh, black uh um athletes remember the tommy Mm -hmm. smith and i'm forgetting the other one's name
0: um i'm not a big sports fan. carlos is his last name right i forget the
1: yeah i forget his first name but they both won you know the i think it was like the gold and the silver and tommy smith gets up on the podium and puts up his hand in the fist right so again this gesture that is kind of like the, the civil servants, right? Turning your back. This is a mm-hmm. gesture, both of of affirmation of you know black solidarity and black um, you know human rights. If you wanted a, a, a kind of a claim to to some kind of a justice, and it's the same claim that was being made outside of the stadium, outside of the. Olympics, right, by these students and by these civil servants, and yet they're kept completely siloed, Mm -hmm. right? One would never have known what was happening with the other, right, that these uh, struggles were, in fact, linked. And there was a lot of grounds for solidarity.
0: Yeah. Another um, sort of subtopic of your book is the way that performance has intervened politically in the kind of post-dictatorship history of Chile and Argentina, the kind of southern cone yes. countries. Could yes. you talk a bit about some of the kind of performance activism in, in those countries?
1: Yes, of course. Um, well, as I said, one of the ways I got started on my my this other trajectory, if you want, of my career was when I joined... Uh, up with the mothers of Plaza de Mayo in Argentina when I met them in 1990 and saw again what you could call, I guess, a gesture, right? It was this reiterative act of showing up every Thursday at 3.30 at the plaza with the photos of their children either um, hung around their necks or on big placards walking and making a silent claim. They couldn't say anything. It was forbidden. For them to well, at least when they got started, it had been forbidden, and then by this time it had become a kind of a ritual performance, and they never changed the uh, the look or the feel of it. So the ways in which they were making a claim against what the government was saying and the military dictatorship was saying, oh, you know, these people have left the country; they're nothing but subversives anyway. Why would we go looking for them? Of course, they'd murdered them all, right? In mm-hmm. Argentina, they murdered thirty thousand of them. And again, students, you know, the the uh, attack on students throughout uh, a lot of the world, but in, at least the world that I know in the Americas has been very brutal. And so the attack on the students and the disappearance of, of workers, especially people who were uh, doing any kind of work that was, you know, communal or trying to help other people. This happened in Chile. The people who would be giving up free milk were disappeared. I mean, it's like unbelievable. Anyway. Um, so it was because of these women going out because the men could not go out. If the men went out, they would be killed and the women would have been killed too, because they would have said, Oh, well, there's an armed resistance. So the women had to go out as mothers, even if they were not mothers, they had to wear Hmm. like the housewife dress, kind of slippers, their headkerchief, look completely defensive, um, defenseless, sorry, and, um, carry these signs. So that the military wouldn't kill them. But it was only after a long time of doing this that finally some, um, I think it was Dutch feminists saw them who had gone to Argentina and saw the mothers that finally they started hearing about what was happening in Argentina. And they made this known to the world. And finally, Jimmy Carter, who was president back then, sent a commission down. To investigate these crimes. He put an end to the financial aid, I mean, to the military aid to Argentina because of what the military was doing. And then Ronald Reagan came in, and he gave the military back its money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, everything was fine, again, with dictatorships, as far as the US government was concerned. So, um, so the way that we got to know about what was going on in Argentina was through these mothers, these women's performance. And they saw it kind of as performance. You know, they thought it was very funny when I called it performance, but, um, but they understood what I was saying about the, the ritualized action, right? They were, they were acting in a certain way for a certain goal, which was to call public attention to what was happening and to make a claim for human rights and they wanted their children back. They knew, most of them, that their children were dead. Mm -hmm. But they said they would not accept that unless they knew who had killed them and why, and those people were brought up on charges. And in Chile, it was a slightly different story because the Pinochet government decided that instead of killing all of the people that disappeared, it would torture them and put them back into society, release them, so Mm -hmm. that they would have like a country of ghosts. Just think about it. One out of every eight Chileans was tortured during the Pinochet regime.
0: Mm.
1: I mean, imagine a country of ghosts where people are released and they have to live in the same community with the people who tortured them. So it created this terrible situation where, um, you know, it's such a traumatic situation that even now um, they're still fighting over this past. They have not been able to come to terms with this past. And only now are they fighting to get a new constitution. But so he Pinochet knew that by putting these people back, it was like filling the country with ghosts and giving a warning. Mm -hmm. You do anything, you're going to be one of those kind of undead, right? Kind of like the zombies. So it was a performance, very strategic, of how you're going to create these people in a way that will terrify everybody else. So these systems of terror that depend on making visible, right, not making invisible, making visible a certain way in which power works. So yeah, there's a lot in that book about that. Um, I wrote a whole other book called disappearing acts about what happened in Argentina, because I was so struck by that when I went there um, in 1990. So yeah, there's terrible, terrible histories. And I think this book, Peticente, wants to get into this terrible, terrible history without it being a terrible book. You know, mm-hmm. um, in the sense I, I'm trying in each one of those cases to find the the reparative gestures, the role of the uh, artists, the roles of the people who are trying to um, to find life, as one chapter says, find life on the roads of death, right? How mm-hmm. how do people survive in the face of all of this? And why does it keep happening, right? Why does it keep happening?
0: I spent a summer in Chile when I was in college. And one of the things that struck me was how... The past of the dictatorship was kind of everywhere, but also kind of nowhere. I mean, I would have conversations with people who would say, "Oh, yeah, I was a social democrat, and you know, it's too bad about the dictatorship," and and then you know, we would go on and talk about opera or something like that, as if yeah. as if that wasn't you know the the giant elephant in the room. Um, what do you feel like are some of the things that that are from a performance studies standpoint interesting about the ways that the memory of the dictatorship has been kind of institutionalized in Chile?
1: Well, you know, you have um, like the museum, Bachelet, who was president uh, right before Piñera. So she had two terms and then Piñera, who is now president, uh, had the one in between her first and second and and is now president again. Um, And he's very much, you know, a right winger, a hardcore capitalist and neoliberalist. But she was actually... Um, a victim of Pinochet's government. She had been tortured and put in one of these uh, concentration camps, and her father had been killed by Pinochet. So she was very committed to the idea of memory and coming to terms. So she built the museum, or she had the Museum of Memory built, in um, Santiago de Chile, and it's a very striking museum. I don't know if you went there when you were there. Um, And I remember being there one time, and a guy was just walking out of the museum and he was yelling and screaming. He was saying, that's not the truth. Everything they say in there is full of lies. This never happened. And, wow. so forth. and it was like, whoa, okay, well, I'm beginning to understand now today a little bit better of where all these uh, you know, people who are deniers of reality are coming from, or at least what mm-hmm. they're related to. But anyway, um, they also created out of a lot of the places that Pinochet's Uh, military had used for torture they created centers of remembrance so one of them the most infamous of the torture centers back then was Villa Grimaldi which is now a center for peace and um, and I don't know what the other part is reconciliation or something like this Um, they also have Londres 68 which was another place where they were torturing people that is now again another center for for memory and for advocacy Um, So these places have sprung up, and in my book, I write about Villa Grimaldi because I went to Villa Grimaldi again and again and again, and I don't know why. Uh, I Mm. promised myself the last time I went, I would never go back, but I mean, who knows? Um, But the reason I I kept going was because it had been such a site of confrontation. Guillermo Calderón, one of the Chilean playwrights that um, Mm -hmm. I know you're familiar with, wrote a play about this about the struggle over Via Grimaldi and what to do with it, right? And what he says is something I've said in my own work as well, that what happens in Via Grimaldi is what happens to memory in that country. Do you just bury it alive? Do you just pave it over? Um, Do you make a memory park? Uh, Do you... what, What do you do with it, right? You don't know what to do with that memory in that country, and that's still a very living that's still a very living issue. And so for me, it's been interesting to see Via Grimaldi evolve into this park. And now the neighborhood is quite gentrified and, and the trees in and the VE and the, are beautiful. And, you know, but it's so important that those sites are there because, um, you know, it's so easy to forget the things that have happened. And you want to have some kind of rocks if you want in the river that say this happened here right and that place is one of those one of those sites Mm.
0: well diana taylor i've already taken up so much of your time but thank you so much for being on uh, new books and performing arts to talk about your book presente
1: well thank you andy i really enjoyed talking to you and uh it's been really fun, really. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and I know you're you're quite prolific, so uh, please do let me know next time you have a book out, and we'll have you back <laughs> on the show.
1: I'm writing a whodunit now, so I'm not sure this will be the. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, I yeah. am.
0: That's fascinating. Uh, do you have? Do you want to let our let our audience know about any um, scholarly projects that you have work that you're working on, or is it too early in that cycle?
1: It's too early because my this book just came out, and yeah. it's now just coming out in a couple of. Uh, like a couple of weeks in the Spanish version and they're putting it out now in the Portuguese version. And unfortunately for me, I have to really spend a lot of time on those translations, mm-hmm. you know, looking them over. And so there's still a lot of work. I mean, like these books are never done when they're done, I guess. Yeah. So I guess, I guess I'm going to let a little time go by and then I'll think about what
0: I want to do in terms of. Well, we we certainly look forward to whatever that project ends up being. Diana Taylor, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Andy. Bye.